Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the second part of this two-part episode looking at investment management for US arrivers into the UK. I'm still delighted to be joined by Oli Cutting of Maseko, and we're going to look at some of the more practical steps that clients might want to think about as they're moving to and then once they've arrived here in the UK. Oli, thank you so much for joining me again. Great to be here. So... In the first part, we were looking slightly uh, on a broader scope, looking at some of the objective-based planning that clients may come to Maseko, um, come to you, Ollie, with, and thinking about things like loss aversion, psychology, and clients' needs. Looking at it now more from the other end of the scale, what you're looking for on a balance sheet or what you're looking for in a financial portfolio, clearly there'll be some things that as the person comes to the UK, and then particularly if they're already here in the UK, are going to be things that you'd like to steer someone away from or recommend against in the long term. My COD psychology, my my sort of my pseudoscience understanding of these things immediately throws the word US mutual fund up in front of me. So perhaps we might sort of touch on everyone's favorite topic there. Sure. Yeah, look, I think I think it's quite a broad topic in many ways. But if if we're thinking about let's case study, someone that's moved to the UK, perhaps they've spent you know, five or six years here. They are American. They worked for 20 years in the States. They built up a number of assets prior to moving over, invested those in all sorts of funds, stocks, ETFs, whatever, uh, moved to the UK and then started earning in sterling and perhaps even open up accounts somehow in the UK. It's more difficult to do now as an American, but, uh, but let's say they, they had done and thinking they were you know, doing absolutely the right thing, started investing in various different products and then perhaps got to a scale or, or, or were nudged by a colleague and told to, to seek some tax or some, some wealth management advice. What are the things that we would be looking out for? Well, I think first and foremost, if, if you're an American and you're a US tax filer still, the US and the IRS are have there's a lot of sensitivities around something called passive foreign investment companies or PFIX for shorts. I think in our world, the first red flag for picking those up is any kind of collective investment fund that sits outside of the US. I like to think of it as two things, perhaps. Perhaps the the US, given its size and, and power and world might, wants people to keep assets at home. But <laughs> let's let let's go with the benefit of the doubt and say that actually if you imagine Americans living all over the world and you have someone living in China, for example, and, and investing in a fund that's documents are all in Mandarin, then the IRS is not going to go through the painstaking exercise of looking through each and every fund prospectus and essentially deciding what sort of counts as vanilla and, and straightforward and ordinary and, and what might be more complex or, or perhaps have holdings in there that they don't quite understand to the same degree i've, I've never i've never thought about that as i mean now yeah. you say that that makes a, I, i'm genuinely having like a slight light bulb <laughs> because of course why if you were the irs you don't speak norwegian and you don't know what that norwegian collective investment right. is so you just go we're not sure we're just going to tax it at a high rate oh dear exactly. yeah i've never thought about that as an approach before sorry i interrupted you with my revelation no 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 You're, you know <laughs> that's one of the ways i like to sort of conceptualize yeah. it but but the long and short is that effectively, you know, let's say you invested in a bog standard FTSE 100 ETF in in a UK account in sterling, and that has some interesting gum dividends, 
capital gain, for example, the gains in there might well, from a UK standpoint, be taxed at your marginal rate, and it might be 20%. And someone might, if they haven't sought proper advice, think, well, actually, that's fine, because my applicable rate in the States is 23.8% with, you know, neat Obamacare tax. And therefore, it's all good. I'll be able to offset these with foreign tax credits and all the rest of it. Actually, they're, both called, they're both called funds. Yeah. What does it matter? <laughs> it's a, Yeah, it's a fun. And they might be forgiven for thinking, well, look, it's a FTSE 100 index tracker or something. This is not complex. But actually, unfortunately, it might trigger PFIC status, which not only could mean that the applicable rates of tax on, on the gains from a US standpoint are much higher, You know, sometimes the highest rates of income tax even more, but also that there might be a nasty filing requirement on their, you know, another page to file on the US tax return, which can sometimes be an extra filing per holding. And that's where you sometimes move into territory where someone's innocent intentions, but they've bought 15 different funds. And then they suddenly find that that's 15 extra forms to file on their next tax return. And there may be a cleanup exercise and all the rest of it. So that's obviously the first thing we might look out for. Have you done anything outside of the US? Let's say, for example, in the UK and invested in collectives that may fall foul of these rules. Fortunately, in the US, US funds with US ISINs attached tend to be completely fine from an IRS standpoint. Now, if, if the individual in question was about to move on to perhaps the arising basis of tax in the UK, where they were going to be assess taxes on their their global wealth as opposed to just income generated in the UK and assets here, we would also want to make sure that any assets they have outside the UK, so let's say in the US, for example, held what's called UK reporting status. I know that this was mentioned in your conversations with Brown Advisory, but and it's absolutely a great point. There are a number of funds available now which report certain information back to the HMRC on an annual basis, effectively allowing them to be treated from an H- HMRC standpoint as funds and capital gains tax, capital gains tax rates. This is the inf- this is the infamous spreadsheet that I that, that I mentioned that has the nice long list with like four thousand yeah. <laughs> that are all mostly yeah, private equity. Yeah. <laughs> and and actually, maybe that's a good segue into kind of another point there, which yeah. is. I think people often think about this and they say, oh, well, that that means, you know, the landscape for for funds that work from a US and UK perspective is really small. Actually, it's not too small these days. And one of the benefits of Maseko's scale nowadays as perhaps the largest sort of independent US-UK focused wealth management practice is that as we're approaching $3 billion of assets under management, if our CIO, Damien Barry, and his team find a new fund that exists in the US, for example, they may well be able to approach that fund provider and actually encourage them to seek out UK reporting status and proactively be added to that list. So instead of just looking at a menu and going, okay, these sort of work, let's pick from there, we start from the other end of the spectrum, which is what do we think is the best structure of a portfolio in terms of maximizing risk-adjusted returns for a given level of risk? What are our views on diversification? And we do favor sort of fund-based approach and 
funds and ETFs that hold thousands of underlying securities and, and take out some of that specific risk. Beyond that, ensuring that we have an overweight to certain style premia around an adequate exposure to value stocks, small cap and profitability. And then also in the fixed income side, you know, a great deal of control around the global spread and, and the credit and duration profile of those funds where they can really focus their time and energy on thinking about the best possible portfolio. And we've built longstanding relationships to buy institutional share class funds in the US that work from a UK standpoint too. But as I say, you know, if we're constantly kind of reviewing those positions, and if it were the case that it makes sense to, to add a new fund manager into the mix, we understand that concept of making sure that the funds are tax appropriate on both sides of the pond. And so that's what we would uh, encourage they set up. I enjoy the sort of the idea of this bullish nature of the, well, in all seriousness, of your CIO going to a, a fund and saying, do you not see the market that you could have available? I, I, I know that I'm sure obtaining UK reporting status is not a tiny task or, a, you know, a, 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 a that cheaper task. But here are, I mean, how many how many middle-class Americans are there in the UK who might have a bit of investing on the side? That's not a tiny number of people. Do you want to be ahead of the pack in what is a larger, but still quite a small pool relative to the size of the US mutual fund market, for example? I'm conscious that, as you kindly pointed out, mutual funds are something that of those investments, and that's why it was the one that came to me first, it is of the more well-known in the sort of the stable of tricksy US-UK investments. There are, however, other products, instruments that um, the Americans here in the UK will need to take gentle care with. My mind also goes to life products, which for those not in the know, bear a passing resemblance to life insurance. And you will also often hear them referred to as life insurance products, but don't really have that much to do on a day-to-day basis with insurance in the way that you think of it for your phone, your car, your pet, your house, et cetera. So where do you see the pitfalls, but also the opportunities with life products? There are a number of products where they might look fantastic on the surface for someone living in the UK. And, and you could extend that to even you know ISAs, for example, where you take post-tax income, put it inside a tax wrapper, keep topping up every year, you can invest the you know, the underlying asset and it grows and then you take it out in the future and great, you know, you've created a tax deferred situation. But for example, you know, that's where the an understanding of the US-UK tax treaty, working with a good accountant, working with a good lawyer, advisor, they'll tell you that it may not make sense to have an ISA, for example. You can do, but you might have a US tax liability. And the same could extend to things like onshore, offshore bonds, where they may be brilliant products for certain Brits living in the UK, for example. But from a US tax standpoint, they may cause headaches in the future. And interestingly, something we're seeing a little bit more of, perhaps because they went into fashion, you know, maybe five, 10 years ago in the States, are certain types of annuity and life products on the US side, with a similar concept being setting aside present day dollars, there's an investment component. So there's some growth aspects and there's some element of tax deferral. So later in life, when your income situation has completely changed, can you, for example, draw out 10% tax-free from certain annuity products 
But in the States, sure. But actually, this is where there needs to be a degree of oversight and looking into these things, because it may well make more sense to surrender a policy early, even at sometimes a penalty or a tax hit, if it's the case that in the long run, your intentions are to stay in the UK and you won't benefit from all the various tax protections that you were sold in the first place. So I think it's just about being very careful about the types of products you're looking at. And on one hand, you know, if, if you're an American living in the UK, you, you may have access to less investment structures than a straightforward Brit or a straightforward American. But it may also open doors in different ways. You know, could you, if you were a non-domiciled individual in the first place, and very wealthy, perhaps think about something like an excluded property trust um, with assets that haven't entered the UK yet? Or is there a way that perhaps your parents or the kids' grandparents could set up a 529 plan that actually creates some tax deferral there and helps with the university spend? Some doors close and others may open. Let's just say that. The thing that I constantly remind myself is just because something works in one country doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't work it doesn't work in that so five to nine plans for example a very common very very common piece of uh, a, a account that one opens in the us not necessarily that efficient in the uk you have to be watched carefully sure. certain types of vices in the uk wonderful accounts in the uk very common especially for you know young people or children people starting out in their investment strategies less tax efficient in the us we often in the industry both our industry, but also particularly your industry, you'll hear people talk about wrappers. So an ISA wrapper by the tax benefits, the policy, the concept that sits around a particular account, you'll talk about the wrapper of a life of, of, of an offshore bond, the wrapper of a, of, of a five to nine plan. That wrapper might be wonderfully efficient in one country, but it's not in the other. And I think to your point, if there's any one thing that someone should take away, if they've got this far into the conversation, I hope they're with us so far, is just because it works in one country doesn't necessarily mean that it works in the other. Just because one country has said the word bond or annuity or account or individual retirement account or individual savings account doesn't necessarily mean that that is going to be reciprocated in the other. So it is very well worth people seeking out the assistance of people like Maseko to make sure that exactly the point you mentioned, Dolly, if a door has been shut, that we've got another door we can still walk through that <laughs> is efficient in both countries. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think also it's about, you know, not necessarily feeling a responsibility to bring all your assets over to that new country straight away or or necessarily to liquidate everything from an existing wrapper, as you describe it, straight away. It's about, you know, having the proper advice and really taking a look at what are the tax implications, what are the risk implications, and where are the markets at the moment? Do you need this cash in the UK? Uh, is there another structure that could perform a similar function that, that is more tax efficient given your situation now? Or perhaps how will your situation change? You know, maybe this April you're moving on to the arising base of tax in the UK. Is there an exercise we should be looking at? There's all sorts of exciting to us conversations that can be had. And I do like the sort of problem solving element of our role. I think take what is quite a complex landscape and distill it into into easy to understand pieces of information for clients. And sometimes, as you say, that is about saying, this does not work for you. You know, Do you find that thinking about an, another aspect to explore, that when that American comes to the 
UK and maybe they come to you having spent, you know, 20 or 30 years in the US as an adult and now let's say the slightly older American who's now coming here, are they arriving with these preconceived notions about the rappers that will work? They'll arrive thinking, I know what five to nine plans are, got that. I know what a 401k or an IRA is, I've got that. Is there some, I think the phrase I've heard you use for is home country bias. Is there a bias that you have to sort of work through or work against or work alongside to eventually pull someone slightly more into the middle of the road? Yeah, at times I would say. I mean, I think there's a lot more readily available information online nowadays about different products and how they may or may not work and benefit someone. But I would tread with caution, in part because don't believe everything you read online, <laughs> but You're also, <laughs> also because I think there's an element of of change from year to year. You know, something that works perfectly today might not work in a few years' time. But that's why it's important to have people at the forefront of these updates for example to, to tax codes and, and all the rest of it and you know i've learned a great deal from andrea solana who's our head of advanced planning at maseco and a large part of her role is really making sure that as soon as something changes that might impact the efficiency of a, of a given product available to someone that perhaps is exposed to both us and uk tax jurisdictions, that we're really at the forefront of those discussions as opposed to finding out after the fact. To your point about home country bias, I think sometimes that is more relevant from a sort of investment standpoint where certainly in the years, let's say the years leading up to early 2022, you had this great rally in the US stock market, particularly large cap US stocks within that particularly large cap big tech stocks. And so if you're an American and you're investing your assets at home with a US wealth manager, there's always perhaps this tendency to favor what you know. And, mm -hmm. and what you know might be the, the Wall Street down the road and, and everyone's buying US. And sometimes we would see these you know, really large retirement accounts that were entirely made up of the S&P 500, for example. And I think Perhaps because our nature is in supporting global families, as we call them, or people who are have an openness to, to moving around the world, and perhaps that's why they've ended up moving from the US to the UK or otherwise. We like to look at the, all the available stocks so that the whole market, you know, not just the US market or the UK market or even the developed market. It's about making sure you have that diversification and balance across different geographies and we see it too in the uk as well some of the portfolios on offer perhaps from uk-based wealth management firms have blue chip companies and familiar names that we're used to seeing and walking past every day in, in the streets here so it's not a us only concept but certainly entering into two, the 2022 when we held our conviction in having that global diversification and also for example as i said an overweight towards profitable companies or perhaps value stocks that creates an element of weatherproofing where when a market goes up and up and up and up you want to make sure that you're you also have skin in the game elsewhere and create some volatility protection 
I mean, if it's no other concept that anyone needs to know, it's that diversification, diversifying your portfolio is usually the secret to happiness. It's the meaning of life. It's the be all and end all. It's the cat's pajamas when it comes to prudent risk, appropriately managed risk portfolios. Ollie, I want to say a massive thank you for joining me today and for all of your really helpful discussions. I'm certainly going to take away some of your thoughts about loss aversion, psychology, and about how I should be managing my own funds, let alone recommending clients do the same. I should be, you know, spending less on those day to day and more more in the long more in the long term saving. Thank you so much again for those listening that want to know more about both Ollie and Maseko. I have no doubt that a quick Google search will set you right. Uh, it only leaves me again to once again offer that if you'd like to leave a review or a rating for this podcast, it does help us immensely. And we are very grateful for all, all those that do. We will see you again next time. Thank you very much.